0: The Christian life is often filled with all sorts of uncertainties. Uh, maybe you are wondering whether or not you are in God's will. Maybe you are wondering whether or not you are reading the Bible correctly. Maybe your your mind is filled with questions uh, related to a specific verse you cannot fill, figure out. Uh, maybe your uncertainty relates to a specific theological question. When it comes to Christianity, there there are all sorts of areas in our lives where we feel uncertain, we feel as though we have questions. And yet, I I think that we can all agree that we do feel certain about one thing, or many many things, but one thing in particular that I, I think is worth mentioning tonight, and it's that we all ought to pray better. We all ought to pray more. I don't think there's anyone in this room who does not feel certain about this. If we're honest with ourselves, we all recognize we can grow in our personal uh, discipline of prayer. And maybe the reason your prayer life struggles is because you are uncertain as to how to help it grow. You have uncertainties about prayer. What is prayer? What constitutes as good, quote-unquote, prayer? How long should I pray? How should I pray? And so we all feel certain that we can grow in our prayer life, and yet we feel uncertain as to how we can make that happen. What are we to do in order to become more prone to pray? What can we do in order to to excel in our prayer life? I think this is why the disciples asked Jesus how they were to pray. Because they felt that same tension in their hearts. In the book of Luke, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, How are we to pray? And let me just point out, that was not a bad question to ask. You know, often the disciples come to Jesus and they bring a question to him and he rebukes them because their question is uh, pointing to their lack of faith, it's pointing to to their, their lack of trust in Christ, and yet, not this time. Jesus does not critique the disciples for this question. Instead, Jesus taught them how they were to pray. With that said, we're going into a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. This is especially important, I think, for many of us in this room who all agree with the fact that we could grow in our prayer life. It's especially important for us who feel uncertain as to how we are to pray, how often we are to pray, what what words we are to say when we pray. So, with that said, let's come to Christ and ask with His disciples, how are we to pray? Let me begin by reading our passage for tonight. We're, we're going to be in Matthew 6. Uh, last week, if you were here, we went through Matthew 6 and we skipped the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is a section in the Sermon on the Mount, because we wanted to give a whole entire night just to this passage. So let me begin just reading through the text. We're in verse 5 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Here's what Jesus says. And when you pray... Well, as we have seen the last couple of weeks, Jesus is speaking against hypocrisy. He's, he's speaking against self-righteousness. He's speaking against those who, who tend to make their Christianity into a show so that other people see it and might be baffled by their godliness. And so Jesus is helping us to know how we are to pursue godliness in a way that is not showy. Jesus is showing us how we are to pray in a way that is not showy. And remember last week we saw these two commands. Do not pray like the hypocrites on the one hand. And then on the other hand, do not pray like the Gentiles. Remember the the hypocrites pray in public so that they might be seen by others. Jesus says, do not pray in order to be seen. Next, Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles. The Gentiles babble on in their prayers, hoping that their sophisticated pleas to God would earn his attention. But remember, the gospel is a constant reminder that we cannot earn God's favor. So we can't pretend that our prayers must meet some sort of expectation in order to turn God's attention towards us. That's anti-gospel. That's not what the, the scriptures teach. So, with those things said, Jesus teaches us how we should pray. Right? He shows us how we should not pray and now he's transitioning to, to give us a positive example of how we are to pray. Now at the outset of Jesus' example, he sets sets the stage for this prayer with four words. Our Father in heaven. I mean, these words seem simple. Uh, they, They seem somewhat unimportant. They seem as though it's just a passing phrase. And yet... They set the entire context for what is to come in the rest of this prayer. So we're actually going to spend a bit of time here. These simple words serve to remind us of who we are praying to when we come to God in prayer. And this is significant. When we come to God, it is significantly important for us to remind ourselves who it is that we are turning our attention to in prayer. First off, look at the word our. The very first word here. This prayer is meant for the congregation. This prayer is meant to, to be prayed in the context of the plural. Our Father. Jesus intends for us to pray corporately. He brings this fact to our attention where the, with the very first word in this prayer. I mean, does this mean that we can't pray this prayer alone? No, like of course not. Does this mean we should not pray alone? Of course not. We ought to pray alone. But with that said, Jesus is also calling us to pray in a group setting. And that's important for us to see, especially in light of what we saw last week. Remember, this kind of offers a balance to what we saw last week, where Jesus is encouraging us to not be like the hypocrites, but instead to go and pray in private, Go and find a room, get by yourself and pray so that you may not be praying in order to be seen by others. And so this, this is a warning uh, that Jesus is giving us in a sense that's guarding us against that temptation to allow the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction. Right? We might hear Jesus' words, don't pray in order to be seen and take that too far and then begin to pray only in private. So we ought to be careful of our motives when we pray in public, but that does not exclude the fact that we ought to be praying in public. We should pursue praying in community. I I think that's why our our prayer uh, meeting here on Tuesday nights before we start is so valuable. It's an opportunity for us to come together before our evening and pray for this community in community. So we come together on a weekly basis. If you don't know where that is, you go into the kitchen here and then it's the room off the kitchen and we're there at 6.30 every week praying for the needs of this ministry. So let me add here, there are a couple of significant benefits to praying in public. You can learn as you pray with others. You have the opportunity to learn from others as they pray to God. You get to hear their prayers and be encouraged by their prayers and then in a sense, in a godly sense, seek to imitate their prayers. You can also, by praying in community, learn about the prayer needs of that community. Right? When you begin to pray with others, you begin to, to hear and, and come in touch with, with different uh, prayer requests going on in that congregation. Those are just a couple of valuable aspects of praying in community. Uh, Jesus is calling us to pray in that way for that reason. There's benefit to praying in community. Now notice the next significant point in this simple phrase is our Father. Again, Jesus is telling us to take stock of who we are praying to when we come to God in prayer. We are praying to our Father. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he says this about the fatherhood of God. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. I think J.I. Packer is on to something here. When we come to God in prayer, we're not coming to some distant, far off being who's just out there. We're coming to our loving Father. When we come to God, we're coming to our Lord who cares deeply for us as His children. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God through Christ, then you can come to Him with confidence. If you have been united to Jesus through His life and His death and His resurrection from the dead, you can now look to God as Father and this is where it's profound. We get to look to God as Father in the same way that Christ looks to the Father because we are one with Christ. So we get to look towards our God and, and not look at Him as some distant, far-off being, but we get to come to Him with all the benefits of being a child. We do not have to fear His wrath when we, when we walk into His presence with a prayer request on our tongue. We do not have to question whether or not He is on our side if you have placed your faith in Christ, then you can come to God with all of the confidence in in the world because He is your loving Father. And we cannot miss the final two words in this statement though. The final element of this simple phrase that sets the scene for everything that follows is the words, in heaven. Again, again, This might seem insignificant. This might seem as though it's just a blip to be passed over. But we can't miss this. When we think of our Father in heaven, we aren't thinking about a location. We're not just saying God, our Father, is located in the heavens. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I mean, if you were to say that that President Lincoln was in the White House. What are you trying to communicate with that statement? You're not talking about President Lincoln's locale. Right? You are talking about the fact that Lincoln has authority, and his authority is represented by where he resided. Likewise, when we say our Father is in heaven, our Father in heaven, we are referring to the fact that God has all authority. He is the all-powerful Lord of all. He is the ruler of history. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and He is your Father. That's who you are praying for. That's who who you are coming to speak with. This is the God that we are coming to in prayer. When we arrive at the footstool of, of our Father, we are coming to the footstool of heaven earth. We we are coming to the ruler of humanity. We are coming to the one who holds our days in his hands and he holds every one of our breaths in his fingertips. This understanding of God, when we begin to come to to God in prayer with this sort of understanding of who he is, it's going to change the way we pray. When we recognize that our audience in prayer is the Lord of creation and that that Lord of creation is our Father, that will shape the way we pray. So that sets the stage for the prayer request that we're about to discuss here. Uh, When we pray in community to our good and gracious Father who rules and reigns from heaven, we can come to Him with all the confidence in the world. So in light of that, let's look at the rest of this prayer. Because here here what we see is Jesus is setting in front of us uh, six different petitions that help offer us some insight into the way we ought to pray. Now, this isn't the only thing we should pray. This isn't the only thing we can pray as Christians. No, Jesus is not telling us the only thing we're allowed to pray. Instead, he's teaching us how we ought to pray. This is is a number of important principles that we ought to learn from Christ as we seek to, to approach God in prayer. Here's what we find. Let's begin in verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, here we see three specific uh, uh, petitions here in these few words. And these petitions are all centered around God's reign. Here's the three petitions. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, in English there's a sense in which none of those phrases really seem like petitions. It seems as though Jesus is just saying, uh, here are three ideas about God that are all true. But that's not the case. In fact, when, we, when you go to the original language, it's very clear that these are all actually petitions. Jesus is saying, these are the things you ought to be praying to God for. So a better translation here is, let your name be Honored as holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Right? These are petitions. This is Jesus saying, Plead with God for these things. We need to to recognize that we need God's name to be recognized as holy throughout the earth. We're praying that God's name might be revered. We're coming to God with requests that his name would be made great. We're coming to God asking Him that His kingdom would expand on earth. We're coming to Him asking that His will would take place in history. I also want to point out that these three statements, they're all related. Notice the very final phrase there. On earth as it is in heaven. That little phrase in verse 10, it actually refers to all three of these petitions. Let your name be recognized as holy in earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer here is that God's name would be made holy, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, and that all of these things would happen on the earth in the same way that they are taking place in the heavenly realm. Jesus is saying that we ought to pray that God's reign would be realized and recognized on earth, in history, in time, and in space. So, let's look at these different petitions. First he says, let your name be recognized as holy. So let us pray that that God's name would be honored. Let's pray that on earth, God's name would be seen as holy. Because our God is a holy God. He is a God of distinction. He is not like us. He is above us. He is entirely separate from us. And yet, God is willing to make himself known to us. He is willing to step into our midst, even though he is entirely above and beyond us. So we pray that God's holiness would be recognized and understood throughout the world. We are praying that more and more people throughout the nations would come to recognize that our God is holy. We're praying that they would recognize Him for who He truly is. We're praying that God's holiness would be recognized and understood in the church. Remember, the church is meant to reflect God. Last week we, we spoke about this, that, that one, one d- detractor that, that many people see in the church that they do not like, that, they, that, that, that detracts them from God is, is the hypocrisy of the church. And so we're praying that God would rid hypocrisy from our midst so that we might represent God for who He is. You know, one way for the the world to recognize the holiness of God is through the testimony and example of the church. And so we pray that God would sanctify us. We pray that God would make us holy so that we might be able to portray God's, God's glory and His holiness and His purity in the midst of a watching world. You know, when we are plagued by heinous sin in our midst, it hinders the church from representing the holiness of Christ. It hinders us from portraying God's name as holy. And so we ought to be pleading with God and praying with God that he would rid us of our heinous sin. We pray that he would make us holy so that his name might be known throughout the world. We're praying for the church so that the church could function as a mechanism to display who God is. Next, we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his kingdom would come and expand on earth. God rules and he reigns from heaven. I think we can all agree on that. God is the king of eternity, his dominion is everlasting. And therefore, we pray that God's eternal reign, his eternal kingdom, would begin to spread throughout the world. You know, this is a problem for humanity, though. Because we as people, we have this nasty little habit of seeking to make our kingdoms great. That's what we want. We want to make our kingdom known. We want to make our kingdom famous. We want to make our name great. We want nothing more than to expand our own little dominions. It's Salesforce, building the tallest structure in San Francisco just to communicate how powerful and successful this company is. It's Facebook boasting on a regular basis. We have 2 billion users It's Muhammad Ali shouting at the top of his lungs, I'm the greatest of all time. We all do this. We all boast. We all seek to make our kingdom and our dominion known. We boast about our GPA. We boast about our records. We boast about our accomplishments. We boast about our social media reach. We boast about our followers. We celebrate all the likes that we have. We make sure that... that Our work outshines our fellow employees so that we get the promotion. We make sure to downplay other people's achievements to make ours seem all the better. I mean, that's what one-up storytelling is all about, right? It's all about downplaying the person standing next to you and making your story all the better. You think that's a good story? Let me tell you my story. Let me show you how I am the hero of all of my stories. Let me spread my kingdom. Let me spread my domain. And so God is calling us to pray with urgency that his kingdom would expand in our hearts and throughout the world. You know, in order for God's kingdom to expand, our individual kingdoms must decrease. What John the Baptist said was true. I must decrease so that he must increase. You remember that? When John the Baptist said that? In John chapter four, John the Baptist sees Jesus' ministry growing and he says, I need to decrease, right? All of John's uh, disciples are coming to John and they're all saying, hey, Jesus' ministry is growing. He has more disciples than you. He's baptizing more people than you. John the Baptist says, praise God. Perfect. That's the plan. My kingdom needs to decrease, his needs to increase. My name needs to decrease, his needs to increase. That ought to be the shout and the cry of our hearts. We need to pray that we would no longer live to expand our little kingdoms. We need to pray that the church would have this mindset. That the church would have the mindset to expand God's kingdom, not its own. That's because you cannot have it both ways. You cannot simultaneously advance God's kingdom while trying to advance your own. You can't do both. Just this morning, I, I, I was reflecting on my own life as I'm, as I'm thinking through these things. and I'm, I'm just thinking through all of my, my friends from high school, friends I grew up with. And, and I'm reflecting on the fact that so many of them have very little respect for me nowadays. And that's hard for me, right? It's hard for me. They see the way I live and they go, okay, you're just weird, right? And, and for me, that is a difficult thing to, to bear. I do not like being viewed as the weirdo who's a Christian and who's now a pastor. Like, I, I don't like that. I just got back from Florida and every time I go home, I, it's just a reminder that, yeah, my friends and some of my family members, they're just like, oh, yeah, John, yeah, you're kind of weird now. Who likes that? Who likes that? In order for God's kingdom to be advanced, your kingdom needs to be brought to shambles. There are days when I would rather not be the strange neighbor on the street who's working at a church, right? There are days when I would rather my kingdom grow. I would rather not be the weirdo. I would rather allow my kingdom to to be made known. I'd rather that happen than God's kingdom to grow. And so what I need to do and what I would bet many of you need to do with me is pray and plead that God would allow us to, to throw aside our desires for our little kingdoms and allow his to reign. We want to allow God's kingdom to expand. And in order for that to happen, we have to sacrifice our own reputations and our own kingdoms. It's the only way this is going to work. You can't have it both ways. So let's pray to God that we would be willing to do this. Let's pray that God would rid us of our timid spirits and make us bold in order to preach the message of Jesus, no matter how weird it makes us sound. Let's be willing to go into the midst of others and proclaim Christ, even if it makes us look like the strange you know, oddity of the neighborhood. Let's be willing to do that. Let's be willing to proclaim the message of Christ to a hostile world, even if it means our own personal kingdoms suffer. The next thing we see here is that we ought to pray that God's will would be done. And this is similar to what we just saw. This again is a shot at our pride and our desires. We have to recognize that God is the author of life. He is the author of history. What he says stands. His will will excel. His plans will succeed. And that means that we must pray that God would humble our hearts so that we might submit under God's will. We don't want that. This is where we need to do soul searching. In what ways are, are you seeking to resist the will of God? Where do you know God's will and you are seeking to resist it? What areas of your life do you notice that happening within your own heart? Are there any areas of your life where you're actively rebelling against what you know to be the will of God? And this takes honesty. It takes us being honest with our own hearts, with our own selves. This morning I found myself mad because I walked into the garage No kidding. I dropped an apple and it rolled under the car. And I was like legitimately mad, right? I was legitimately mad. The apple rolled under the car. Why? Why why does that happen? I mean, it's a silly example, but my attitude changed in that moment because what happened did not fit into my plan for the morning. I wanted to walk into the garage and just have an easy stroll through the garage into my car. And instead... My plan was thwarted. And 30 seconds of my morning just went out the window. I had to lean over, pick up the apple, and go, to the, go back inside and wash it off. You know, huge deal, right? I mean, that just shows how fickle our hearts are. We want our will. We want our will to be done. And if anything comes in, in the way of that, even a 30-second detour back into the house and over into the sink, I mean, that, that will upend our morning. We don't want our wills to be thwarted. Let's be honest with ourselves. We have to fervently pray that God would humble us under his will for our lives. And to be frank, sometimes that means that we are going to have to suffer. Sometimes that that means God is going to teach us patience and humility by smashing our plans. Sometimes God is going to look at our hearts and say, yep, you need to grow here, so the apple falls under the, the, the car. That's, that's God's plan at times. And we have to be humble and submit underneath God's will. We need to ask that He would give us the, the craving to submit under His will. Because we don't have that craving in and, in and of ourselves. We need God to do that. And this means that sometimes... We're going to lose sleep in order that God's will might be done. This means that sometimes we're going to lose friends in order that God's will might be done. This means we sometimes might have to sacrifice our own plans in order for God's will to be done. So we need to pray. And we need to ask us over or ask of God over and over again, to humble us and help us to submit to His will. Let's keep reading, though. Now we enter into the second half of the prayer in verses 11 through 13. Here's what we find. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Three more requests here. But notice the focus of these requests uh, have changed. Here we're not necessarily focused on God's rule and his reign and his dominion working out in our lives. Here, we're focused on God providing daily provisions. There's a transition here in the prayer. We're called to to pray to God and ask him to care for us on a daily basis. This is, this aspect or this, this portion of the prayer is calling us to depend on God. This portion of the prayer reminds us that we need to be humble and allow God to take care of our every need. We're not self-made. We need God to come and help us. We have to find our daily food from God. We have to seek daily forgiveness from God. We have to seek daily protection from God. And so Jesus is teaching here uh, that we need the daily reminder that everything we have and everything we need comes directly from the hand of God. So let's seek him for it. And let's quit depending on ourselves for those things. So the first petition here is for daily bread. I think this is pretty interesting. You know, you think about this in the context of 21st century United States of America. And Jesus is telling us pray to God for bread on a daily basis. I mean, we live in the most prosperous nation to ever exist in human history. And Jesus is telling us to pray for bread. I mean, think about this. Even some of the poorest people among us own iPhones and drive cars. And yet Jesus is telling us to pray for bread. We, we have the ability to work jobs here where we never even break a sweat. Like we, we sit in an air-conditioned room, we work on a computer, and we make a lot of money doing it. We're in a culture full of self-sufficient, self-made men and women. Worked hard and got prosperity. And so here's the question. Do we actually need to, pray to God and ask him to provide our daily bread? Do we need to look to God and ask him for our daily sustenance? I, I mean seriously, it's like, Jesus, have you ever heard of DoorDash? I got this thing, it's like an app. I just hit my, hit my thumb on the screen and food just comes to me. I go on this other app over here and I, I can literally get someone to deliver my groceries for the week. From my phone. I don't even have to walk outside my door. I got food taken care of, God. Right? I, I don't need you for that. I need you to help me with bigger things. I need you to help me with, with things that I can't make happen. I, I need you to help me with the things that are outside of my control. I, I got the food, I, I got the clothing, I can pay for gas. I can take care of those things, or at least my parents will, right? But, but here, Jesus is telling us that we need to pray for bread. No, we want to pray for the things that we can't make happen on our own. We want to pray that God would make the, the stock market tick upward. We, we want to pray to God that he would help us uh, get the job of our dreams. We, we want to pray that we would get a raise, We want to pray that God would give us uh, the grade that we need because he knows we haven't studied for the test. You know, we need him to do the things that we can't do. Those are the things I need you for, God. I I don't need you for the daily bread. And yet, here Christ is calling us to depend on God for just that. Bread. Daily bread. He's calling us to depend on him for, for gas. Everything. The simple things, the big things. We're praying to God and asking that that He would give us the paycheck that we need. The the paycheck that we deserve for working a 40-hour week. We're asking that He would provide for us. We're asking that He would He would give us breath and life. We're looking to God for all things because apart from God's kindness, you have no bread. Apart from God's will, you have no gas in your tank. Apart from him kindly looking upon you, you have no breath in your lungs. So we need to look to God for all things, even the simple things, even the things that seem to just go go from our minds right away. We, we don't think of them as that important. And yet God is the one who provides for every single one of our needs. Next, we see we are to. Depend on God for daily provision and forgiveness. We're called to seek God's forgiveness on a daily basis. Uh, let me point out here that in Jesus, we have forgiveness. Right? Many, many of you here, you know that. When we come to Christ, when we look to Him in faith, when we repent of our sins, we are forgiven by God for that we're, we're forgiven for our sins when we just turn from our sin and look to Christ in faith and that's a once and for all declaration if you are a Christian your sins have been forgiven past and future and so why is Jesus telling us to pray for forgiveness on a daily basis what what's going on there why would he do that well Yes, we're forgiven for our sins, past, present, and future, the moment we come to Christ. However, that does not mean that our our lives, after we come to Christ, are free from sin. No, no. This is actually one way that God is calling us to grow, is to repent on a daily basis. When we come to God and seek forgiveness from God, that actually gives us an opportunity to to come out of our sin on a daily basis because we as Christians constantly live with sin in our hearts. And so God has actually given us a provision by calling us to seek him in forgiveness. And as we come and seek him in forgiveness and we're reminded of our sin, then we can come to him and ask him for strength to overcome our sin, right? Seeking God in forgiveness is something that Jesus has placed uh, there for us in order that we might grow now we have to also notice here that this petition keeps going there're two parts of this petition Jesus first calls us to ask for forgiveness but then he asks us to forgive others like as we're praying we ask for forgiveness as we forgive others so here we need to we need to read carefully i think in essence what Jesus is saying is that when we come to God and we ask for forgiveness, we also ought to be doing a heart diagnosis on ourselves and asking for God to give us the ability and the strength to forgive those in our lives who have wronged us. As you come to God and ask for forgiveness, you are being reminded that you are to resemble God's heart. By showing the same kindness to other people through forgiving them. And when you are reminded of that while you are praying, you can ask for God's help in order to make that happen. Right? We come to God asking for help so that we might have the, the same heart as God so that we might forgive others. Because we want to imitate what God is doing for us. And let's be honest about this. Forgiving others is not easy. If you've been wronged by someone in a significant way, in a deep way, you realize that forgiving others is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that comes simply. And so Jesus is is calling us to something that is is difficult. I think Jesus' point here is that your willingness to forgive others is actually a window into your understanding of the gospel. Your willingness to forgive others actually portrays something about your own understanding of God's forgiveness towards you. That's what Jesus is getting at. And and we actually see that in verses 14 and 15. This this section is actually related to the Lord's Prayer. Um, Here's what he says. Verse 14 for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you. verse 15 but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I think this can seem like a very odd verse, right? You might read that and be kind of kind of confused at first thinking wait a second so is God's forgiveness of me dependent on my forgiveness of others? I don't think that's really what Jesus is getting at. I think Jesus is essentially saying that if you are not willing to forgive others, then you simply do not understand the gospel. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. If you want to, to show your understanding of the gospel, forgive other people because you have been forgiven by God. You know, in order to understand forgiveness, we first off, we need to understand the depth of God's forgiveness towards us. We want to understand what it it means to forgive someone else. We need to start by looking at what God has done for us. In order to understand the depth of our forgiveness from God, we need to first off understand the depth of our offense towards God. That's, That's the reality here. If we think that God is going to forgive us, first off, we need to just understand what have we done to offend him that causes us to need forgiveness in the first place. The more you understand how deeply you have offended God with your sin, the more you can come to understand forgiveness. The more you understand how deeply you have affected God with your sin, the more You can then come to understand what he has done to you by forgiving you. As we already saw earlier in this this prayer, our God is holy. He is remarkably different from us. He is remarkably perfect. And any time you sin against him, you are in essence attempting to defame him. In essence, you are offending the most important individual in existence. But not only that, through your sin, you're actually offering an an offense to the one individual in all of history who is unworthy of any offense. Right, God, in his perfection, does not deserve your offenses towards him. And every time you offer an offense towards him, you are portraying your lack of concern for who he really is. You get that? His perfection makes him inexplicably undeserving of our offenses. Of our offenses, sorry. And yet, through Christ, God forgives. And so we need to understand that if we're going to then show God's forgiveness towards other people. God knows what it's like to be in a situation where, where you are unjustly receiving Offense after offense after offense. Maybe you have been unjustly offended. Maybe you have been uh, on the receiving end of some sort of heinous uh, sin. Maybe maybe that's your situation. And here's what you need to begin recognizing is that Christ is right there with you. I don't intend to downplay your hurt. Instead, I want to point you to the fact that There is someone who knows your hurt all too well. There is someone who is right there with you in the battle. Jesus is in the trenches with you. He has been hurt beyond our understanding. Crucified by his own people. Killed by his own creation. Put to death by the people he came to save. He's where... He's been there. He knows what you're going through. He knows the depth of your pain and he is patient and he is kind and he's willing to help you through that. He's willing to help you forgive even when it feels impossible. He is willing to, to help you by giving you the strength when you feel as though you have no strength to offer any sort of forgiveness. Recognize you can't do this on your own and so you have to turn your attention away from yourself to Christ because he is able to give you the strength you need. And that's a, that lesson right there that we can't look to ourselves, we have to look outside of ourselves, we have to look for, to Christ for strength, that lesson is, is essential for us to understand as we come to the final portion of this prayer. Here Jesus says that we can't do it on our own. We, we, we We cannot resist temptation. We cannot resist the evil one without God's help. And so we need to come to God, pleading with him for help in our fight against temptation and in our fight against the evil one. Because when it comes to temptation, I'm sure there are some of you in this room who feel as though you are helpless in your fight against your temptations. There are probably times when you feel like you are completely incapable of fighting for holiness. In that moment, you flee to God because he is he's saying here, pray to me, ask me. Ask me to deliver you from your temptations. Ask me to deliver you from the evil one. We have a good and kind God who grants precious gifts to his children he is our father and he is willing to offer help he is willing to offer you the help you need when you feel incapable of fighting for holiness so we look to jesus we look to god for help he will not abandon you to your temptation he will not abandon you to the schemes of the devil he will give you help in your fight against sin so ask him let me be somewhat vulnerable here um Sometimes, uh, I'll, I'll just talk through some things I've struggled with. I, I have struggled throughout my walk uh, as a Christian with spiritual doubt. Uh, for me, this is significant. This is a significant struggle uh, that I've had in my life. Um, it, it's legit like struggling with understanding whether God actually exists. These are, these are thoughts that come through my mind that I have to battle. Uh, I, I'll, I'll doubt... Christianity at times in its entirety, and I have to fight against that. Uh, that's something that I have to, to wage war against in my heart. It's something that has been going on for a long time. It's a battle. Uh, just today, in fact, a thought crossed my mind. I'm sitting there uh, preparing for tonight, and uh, I'm looking at this verse, and the thought crossed my mind that it's, it's pretty weird that we believe in a devil, this figure, who is a fallen angel, who means to deceive and devour our faith. Today, I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking that that is that's odd. And the thought comes through my mind: maybe the devil doesn't even exist. Right? It's a it's a quick thought. It's it's a simple thought. It doesn't seem that significant. But I have to stop there and think: what what was that? What was that that just entered into my mind? What was that thought that I just had? Zoom through my, my mind. Uh, I, I just want to point out, I think that's a dangerous thought that entered into my heart today. I mean, C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read the Screw Tape Letters, uh, he points out that one of Satan's most powerful forms of deception is to hide in the shadows. Uh, basically, one of his tactics is, get, is to get you to, to, to doubt his existence in the first place, to doubt the spiritual realm altogether. C.S. Lewis, you know, he's kind of, he's just kind of guessing in some ways, but he, he, he's, he's positing some reasons that the devil might do this. Why might spiritual warfare take this form? Because, in a sense, that's one way that Satan might devour our faith. He wants us to doubt him. Because if we doubt him, that will lead us to doubt God's word. And there comes the wedge. Once you begin to doubt God, you begin to doubt his word, you begin to doubt what he says, your faith is going to begin to fall into shambles. Now, the reason I share this is to point out that we are all prone to temptation. Sometimes significant temptations, right? It's not as though the only temptations we have in life are getting mad when the apple falls under the car sometimes the temptations that we face are significant sometimes they're severe sometimes they feel as though if i if i follow this i'm going to be led to abandoning jesus altogether just just the other day i got a text from a friend who had fallen into sin and he was in such despair that he's literally talking about just abandoning christ altogether sometimes our temptations lead us to that point feel like we're standing on the brink, looking over the edge, wondering whether or not we're going to be able to sustain our faith. (laughs) And we need to be aware that people in our midst are struggling with real temptations, with real legit issues going on in their mind. We need to be aware of that. Not one of us in this room is free from temptation. Not one of us in this room is free from from the, the schemes of Satan and his minions. We're all being affected by that. And so we need to be aware of that so that this is the second reason I bring this up because we need to confess these things in the context of community and fight these battles together. We need to be fighting with each other. Remember this prayer that Jesus gave us, it's an us prayer. We are to pray in the plural. This this is for the community. Jesus recognizes that there is a benefit in praying in community, living in community, living with others, letting other people know the ways in which we are being tempted, letting other people know the ways in which the evil one is, is prowling, seeking our lives. We need to let other people know what's going on. We are in a battle together. And we need all of the resources that we can get. So we look to God for His resources. And to be honest, sometimes we, we, we fail to recognize that some of the resources that God is giving you are sitting on your left and on your right. But some of the resources God has given you are, are those sitting in your midst right now. We're not to enter into this war alone That's a hopeless endeavor. We cannot be keeping our temptations to ourselves. We need to be opening up and allowing the community to come around us and give us the benefit uh, or the help that we need in order to fight this fight together. God has placed people strategically around you so that they might battle with you. So God is calling us to fight together. He is calling us to confess our sins and our temptations to one another so that we might battle together. So I hope hope that this time as as we're going through this prayer is, is an encouragement. Is an encouragement not only to pray on your own but to pray in the context of community and to open up in the context of community. To not try to live the Christian life alone by yourself, but instead to, to walk with others and to follow Jesus' ex- example here in this prayer. So with that said, let me just close our time uh, with a final word of prayer and then we'll spend some time praising God for all that He has done. Lord, we come to you needy Uh, needy for you to provide for our every need and needy for one another because you have placed us in the context of congregation you've placed us in the church you've placed us around others who who are surrounding us offering us the help we need to fight uh, to keep the faith father i pray for tonight the rest of our evening that as we sing and as we Uh, spend time discussing with one another, that we would be encouraged and that we would be able to grow. In Christ's name we pray, amen.